Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Peck. series unitable and I've heard a few snickers about what is that word I can't figure it out unitable it's unitable and I wonder if maybe there should be a question mark on the end of that word because that's the question I think in the midst of a culture that finds itself divided is is this thing unitable can we find a way together in the midst of all the division that we see in all of the rancor there's little in our world that would give us hope about that I think our culture is divided as ever. But before we point fingers at the world, I believe that the single, single greatest failure of the modern American church is the lack of unity that we see all around us within our own ranks. It's hurting our witness. It's hurting our evangelistic appeal. There's a reality that people have got to be looking at us wondering, why would I want to join one more divided thing when that's all I seem to see in my world? But I believe there should be reasons for hope, and that's why I bring this series to you. And that's what this series is about. Actually, at Greenville Oaks, unity has been a core value from well before I came here. And that's one of the legacies that I'm grateful to Keith Maloney and to our current elders and the elders that have come before is this value, this, uh, this keeping of unity that they've tried to hold at all costs. Um, and, and I realized that in five years, and this month it's actually five years since I came here to Greenville Oaks, it's been such a, a blessing to be a part of this place, but I've never focused in on uh, unity in a series. And I thought, that's something we need to talk about in the midst of where our world is. What is it that unites us? Well, there's a secret word in the midst of that word that's not that hard to figure out with the graphic behind it and with this table in the center of the room, but if we're unitable, I think the answer is a, a table is going to be the thing that unites us. A table that unites us in the midst of our divisions in our world to get around table, to know each other's names, to hear each other's stories, and to engage around table. There's something about food that changes the situation. But it's also the table that we come together to take from this morning, to receive from, the table of the Lord, communion, the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to engage in that in a little bit. Before we get back to the table, I want to open God's Word together, and let's pray as we open that right now. God, we ask this morning that you would... Uh, do what we can't seem to do on our own, and that is to find agreement, to find uh, unity, to find something that holds us together strongly than the things that pull us apart. I pray right now, God, in the midst of our world that the church can be a light, that it can be salt, that we can be an example in a place that often hasn't been to the world of what unity can look like. I know this is the prayer that your son prayed before he died, that we would be one as you are one. And God, I pray that we can live that out better in the days ahead. I pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
I have no I, uh, uh, desire to be uh, an alarmist or to be dramatic. But does it look to you like things are beyond repair in our country? As if things can't come together. It seems like we're almost on the edge of a disaster. And one of the hardest parts of this is we've lost the ability to talk with one another, to communicate with people who see things very different from us. It can feel hopeless. Here's what I believe, though. The church has an opportunity to display unity in the midst of a culture that has lost its uh, uh, ever-loving mind and is spiraling into an impassable divide. Either we can follow the culture in its lead, or we can choose to be the church and stand up and act as God intended for His church to live. You know, this unity, I think, can be uh, seen in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different examples. But one of those examples occurred in the summer of 2016. And no, I'm not talking about the election. I'm talking about the decision for Kevin Durant to go to the Golden State Warriors. Can I get an amen about this? Now, Kevin Durant uh, was a, uh, wasn't the first to go to a super team to pursue an NBA championship. LeBron James had done this t- uh, six years before in 2010 as part of the decision with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, and sure enough, they won a couple of championships. But I can't blame LeBron because I'm a LeBron fan, and so I'll put it on Kevin Durant. Now, Durant was a, a Texas Longhorn, which I can appreciate, but he crossed the Red River and he went to the Thunder, and they thought that was a great thing until he decided to leave them to go to a super team. Now, excuse me for a minute while I go on a premature old man nostalgia rant for the next few minutes at the age of 35. I grew up in an era of sports that was very different than the era that we're growing up in, that my kids are getting to see. I grew up in San Diego, California. So any guesses who my sports hero was growing up in San Diego? The Cowboys? Well, I was a Cowboys fan because family was from Texas, yes, but Tony Gwynn was my sports hero. And if you can look back at his career, it's remarkable. He played 20 seasons all of his career for the San Diego Padres. And uh, only three of those seasons did they go to the playoffs out of those two decades. Uh, but look at his individual stats. I want to share them with you. Eight batting titles. Only two people that have won more batting titles are Honus Wagner and Ty Cobb. 15 all-star teams, five gold glove awards, 3,141 career hits. But this is where it gets even more amazing. His career batting average, right? You average out his entire career, 338. And the lowest season batting average he ever had in any of those 20 seasons, or 19 full seasons, was 309. This is unheard of in the modern baseball era with home runs and strikeouts coming all the time, but the most strikeouts he ever had in a single season was 40 strikeouts. It's an amazing career. He was the only player since 1928 to have over 300 career steals and a career average over 338. Tony was a star and he never held out for more money, never thought about going to a different team that could win a championship. He stuck there in San Diego, but it was a different era. But even in the last era of sports, right? Just recently, if you've been in Dallas, you know there's been a similar sports star, Dirk Nowitzki. Dirk was here from the beginning of his career until the end. An amazing career, one championship, but it wasn't all rosy all of those seasons. And I'm wondering if there's ever going to be another Dirk. Is there ever going to be somebody who stays from the beginning of their career until the end, no matter what the cost may be, because they're loyal to a city, they're loyal to a team? It's hard to even know which jersey to buy for your kid now because the good chance is in three seasons or less they're going to be somewhere else. That's the rant. It's over, okay? 
But as I, in that rant, I want to take us to a conversation about church. Because Kevin Durant didn't actually follow a trend that was started by LeBron James. He started a trend that I think was started by Martin Luther. Yeah, in 1517, it was uh, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And there in Wittenberg, Germany, he posts 95 theses to the door of a church. And what's interesting about that time is the church really was one church. I mean, there was the split between East and West that happened in 1054, but that's a digression. For the most part, the Western church was one church at that time. And Martin Luther wasn't trying to start a new church. He wasn't out and angry to do something like that. He actually wanted to reform the church, and he had some good reasons for that. But since then, we have more splits, and another split, and another split. And us Protestants, we have what I've counted up to, at least by Google search, 30,000 Christian groups or denominations that are meeting right now. 30,000. Now, again, Martin Luther had good reasons for protest. Christians haven't always divided over issues as significant as he did. Indulgences, the proper use of papal authority and so forth. I mean, there were some things that needed to be reformed. But that Protestant spirit that started there has caught on. Now step back for a moment and think about what shaped that moment in time, right? I mean, this was the 1500s. It's the age of the Enlightenment. There's this massive, important invention that comes around about that time, the printing press, which changed the world in so many ways. It was a heady time, a time where Protestants were thinking about how do we, how do we reform things back to this book that now we have in our hands that we can read for ourselves, and after 500 years later, this Protestant tradition, we're still protesting. We've got DNA in us that tells us that where you find agreement, that where churches come together, where they choose to divide, is all about our mental furniture. It's all about what we believe, about the principles that we hold, and if we can't agree to all of those principles, then we must have to divide and start something new. And this has happened again and again. I feel this as a preacher because the reality is I can preach a 12-week series about salvation. And I'm still going to get questions on the backside trying to parse out and understand exactly what you're talking about. What does salvation actually come from? What, is, what does baptism actually do? Because we're taught this to parse every little thing to make sure that we find agreement or that it's in line with the teaching that's been passed on. And so one group gets a group of 11 statements, and they decide, this, these are the 11 statements. These are the 11 principles that we can unite around. But then someone finds two more and says, no, there's actually 13, and that creates a division. And there's always that church, the church of the simple way. It's like, no, that's way too many. There's really just two or three that we need to agree on, right? But just a few years later, you're going to find a second church of the simple way because they find one more. We do this over and over again. We've divided, and we've divided, and we've divided because we can't seem to agree and it never stops splitting. When you stay in the mind and you center a movement on the statements and principles, it's never going to stay united. In the 1980s, there was a guy named Donald McGavran who had this idea about how the church ought to expand and grow. And a lot of people took his principles. And his principles were basically baptizing this Protestant division, calling it good and mixing it with a little economic marketing principle. And there was birthed the modern church growth movement. His approach was this. You encourage churches to figure out what your target market is, right? Just like a, a business might do. And you market everything around that idea for what's needed for that specific market. And, and the thing is you can build churches faster if you have a target audience and you build it around like-minded people who all believe the same things and have the same enemies, right? 
And it worked. I mean, churches grew in the 1980s as a result of this. The problem is, it just created a whole lot more like-mindedness echo chambers that were gathering together separate from others who believed the majority of things about Jesus together. McGavern's approach was to encourage churches to baptize what the culture was doing and call it Christian and think this is the way you grow things. But as much as we like to put the blame elsewhere, right? For me on Kevin Durant, for, on Martin Luther, on Donald McGavern, we've got some stuff to own here too, right? Because we bought this stuff hook, line, and sinker. We believe that if we're going to unite, we've got to believe all the same things. We've got to get it all figured out. And I'll say more about this next week. But if our unity is going to be found in agreeing on all the same mental beliefs and statements, we will never cease dividing from one another. Because we will always find something we disagree on. We'll always find a nuance that someone sees this way. We'll always prize these texts over these texts. We'll keep dividing. We can keep splitting if we want to do it that way. But my question for this series is what can unite us? What is it that can bring us together? And it's in the title of the series. We'll come back to table in a moment. But before we get to that, a short Bible quiz for you. Pop quiz, okay? How many of you can, would name, what, what can you name as the first time in the Bible where the word unity or united shows up? Think about it for a moment. It actually comes very early on. It comes in Genesis chapter 2. Open your Bibles if you have them to Genesis 2. I want to read uh, verses 19 through 25. And I want you to listen as I read this to this metaphor of uh, coming together of marriage and what that might do for us as we think about what it means to be united as a church family as well. Genesis 2.19. Now the Lord uh, had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So Adam's naming all the animals, and as he sorts through it all, there's this realization like, None of these are really suitable helpers for what I'm needing. God creates woman to be united with man. And then he designed for these partners to leave their families. And then the word is there, to be united with one another. And when they're united as one flesh, they're able to be naked and unashamed. They're able to be vulnerable about what's really going on in their lives because they've made this commitment to remain united together. And while this is not a perfect analogy for unity in the church, I think there's something to learn here. There's some parallels. Just because I'm united to Holly in marriage, I will tell you this, and she can nod her head, I think, as well. We don't agree on everything. Can I get an amen from any other couples in the crowd, right? Like, just because you put on a ring and just because you decide to be married doesn't mean that you agree on every little thing there is in life to go through together. In fact, that's why we put the ring on. That's why that ritual was there on July 24, 2004 in Dallas, Texas at the Highland Oaks Church of Christ. We didn't come together to sign a, a philosophy. We didn't come together to sign a, a treatise on the things we would always agree on. We came together to be united and to covenant with one another. 
And that's what maintains our unity is not that we agree on everything. It's that we made a decision. It's that we were engaged in a ritual. There were witnesses there that are going to call us to account, not for agreement, but for unity. There was another ritual I engaged in. It was in uh, March 13th of 1997. I was baptized in a baptistry a lot like this in San Diego, California. And I had an idea at that time about what I was doing, giving my life to Jesus, of my eternal salvation, what I had no idea about at that time, and what I wish I'd been taught more is. It was in that baptistry that I was committed to be united with you all as a congregation, with believers across the world. I, I was now in this body and that's what we do, and that's why this table's centered center today. It's why our chairs are a little different. We wanted to look each other in the eyes a little bit more today with this table here to remind us that if we have any hope, we need a ritual, we need a sacrament, a grace from God that comes down that reminds us of what unites us. Because it's not anything I say from this pulpit. It's not a statement of beliefs on our website. What unites us is Jesus Christ, our belief in Him, and a ritual that we do every week. Again, our unity is not built around agreement. It's built around a covenant. It's built around a decision to remain united together despite all the differences we have. And that's the power of what this table does. It's the power of our bond in Christ. And it's the power, I think, that can be an evangelistic opportunity to our world that goes, now why are you all together again? You don't agree on anything, it doesn't seem like. You, you come from all these different places. You, you come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And we say, well, all of those things are secondary to our commitment that Jesus is Lord and to the body and the blood that we share in each week. And I call this series Unitable because I believe if we have any hope in our culture for unity, the only way that's going to happen is around a table. It's going to happen around lunch tables and dinner tables when we engage with people who see the world differently and we learn to see their humanity and what we hold in common. It's going to happen around this table as we disagree together and have hard disagreements about what it means to follow Jesus. But we say, you know what? We have that ability to have hard conversation because we've been united around something we do, that we enact together, that we're united by. And the early church believed this. Open up, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. It's this chapter we focused on a lot in our church history, uh, this coming of the church together at Pentecost. Amazing work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that in the last series on the Holy Spirit. But this morning, I want to read what comes after the baptism, what comes after the incredible moment, because we've all had those mountaintop experiences. We, we, then you all have to come down and figure out how to do life afterward. And that's what the church is figuring out. Listen to this in Acts 2, verse 42 and following. This is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in, in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." That says there they were one and that they had everything in common. Let me ask you, what do you think that means? Does that mean they agreed on every single principle? Does that mean that they saw Jesus teaching the same way? Does that mean that they thought that Gentiles were going to be added in the same way and it would be simple to do that when the time came? I don't think so. I think they probably saw Caesar a little bit differently in the government. I think they probably saw uh, what it was like for the poor and the rich to come together. You have slaves and slave owners that are coming together. They probably saw the world a lot differently 
They had everything in common, but that doesn't mean what we sometimes assume, that they just all believed the same things. Does it mean they all came from the same background or the same socioeconomic status? No. It seems clear in the early church they're struggling through that. But what it meant was that they had a common commitment to the Lord that was number one in their lives, and everything else was secondary and tertiary to that primary commitment to Jesus as Lord. And in, that, in order to grow that commitment, what did they do? They met daily in each other's homes. And what did they do around the, the tables? They broke bread daily. They gathered around a table. And they reminded themselves of the story of Jesus, but they also had conversation around that table. They united with one another. Think about it. The first thing that people knew about these early Christians is they ate together. And when the church in Corinth was having problems, trying to figure out how to work this life in the centuries that came, they... Paul writes to them and he talks about the same idea. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Listen to Paul's instructions to that church dealing with their problems and division. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Let me read that verse again. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. We share a loaf. We share a cup. We share and are united by this table. And when Jesus wanted to leave his disciples, and he knew he was going to be ascending to the Father, do you remember what he did? Before the resurrection, do you remember what he did in his final moments, his final opportunities? He didn't give them a list of things to believe that would unite them. What did he do? He gave them a meal that they were going to share. I love how Barbara Brown Taylor puts this. She says, with all of the conceptual truths in the universe at his disposal, Jesus did not give them something to think about together when he was gone. Instead, he gave them concrete things to do, specific ways of being together in their bodies that would go on teaching them what they needed to know when he was no longer around to teach them himself. Do this, he said. Not believe this, but do this in remembrance of me. I love that quote because what it reminds us of is when Jesus was going to unite them, he knew it would never work around a set of principles or this long list of behaviors they had to perfect or anything like that. The way they were going to unite is this meal, this thing they were to do, that they were to embody, that they were to take into their bodies themselves to remind them of the story they'd given their lives to. Or as N.T. Wright puts it, I love this as well, when Jesus wanted to fully explain what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He didn't even give them a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. Jesus gave us this meal so that we would continue to meet together around it to maintain the unity the Spirit has already developed in those of us who are followers of Jesus. I could tell quote after quote. I could tell you all my theories and ideas about this. But maybe it's more important to hear a story this morning about how significant it is. As I was prepping for the series, I came across a lot of stories that impacted me, that helped me see how important the table was to people's conversion in some moments, to people's continuing journey together. Listen to this story. This story comes from a guy that some of you may know. His name is Reverend Michael Curry. 2015, the Episcopal Church named him the presiding bishop. And if you recognize him, it may be for several reasons. The number one reason is because he actually was at the royal wedding and gave the sermon that you may have seen if you watched Prince Harry and, uh, and Meghan Markle get married together. It was an amazing ser sermon about love. It's worth going back to and getting a chance to listen to what that, uh, that sermon was really all about. 
But Bishop Curry tells the story of uh, before he became the presiding bishop over the Episcopal Church. Told the story of, uh, of, of a young couple. Young couple, a woman who was an Episcopalian in the 1940s, and she invited her boyfriend to come to church with her. And, and when it came time for the Eucharist, when it came time for the Lord's Supper, that time around the body and blood of Jesus, she went forward and, and he stayed there. He wasn't a believer at the time, but he remembers watching her go up there and this feeling of fright came over him. Because this was in the midst of a segregated time and this was a white church and, and there she was and he realized there's one chalice to drink of and, 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 and this young man said, I, I've never seen white and black people drink out of the same water fountain, much less drink out of the same cup. How is this going to go? And so she goes up, she goes forward to uh, take of this cup and after she'd taken the bread, she comes before the priest and finally the priest lowers and this young man is watching, this outsider of the faith, watching this moment. And he lifted that cup to her lips and said, as he had said to others, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And that man decided from that moment on, if that could bring these divided people together, there's some power here that I need to investigate. Later he would give his life to Jesus. And those two, that couple that was there that day was Bishop Curry's parents. Now think about the power of a moment like that, Right? And what he says about communion, I just so agree with. He says, this is a sacrament of unity that overcomes even the deepest estrangements between human beings. As we come to the table this morning, I want to ask us to dwell on what this meal means. When we take this, we're taking of a single loaf. We're taking of this body of Christ together. When we take the cup, we're doing the very same thing. And this act unites us in a way that nothing else in our world can. It's a powerful moment. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we do, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.